Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is with us for the hour. We'll talk domestic and foreign issues and take your calls, too. What questions do you have for Senator Murphy? Here's the number, 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Senator Murphy joins us today from a studio in Washington. Uh, Senator Murphy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's just dive right in. Let's talk about that Mueller summary. Uh, The latest uh, uh, news outlets reporting that there are members of Special Counsel Mueller's team that are frustrated with the limited information Attorney General Barr has provided about their nearly two-year investigation. Um, How do you respond when you hear that news? Well, there's an easy way to fix uh, any frustration that Mueller's team has about uh, the level of detail that's been provided to Congress. Give the report to Congress. Give the report to the public. Uh, There's absolutely no justification for the attorney general withholding this report from Congress. It's an absolute abomination uh, that he doesn't think this document is relevant in its whole uh, for a Congress that has a totally different responsibility than the attorney general. The attorney general does have a responsibility to decide if he is going to undertake um, charges against the president of the United States or anyone else who was involved in potential Um, uh, illegal activity. Uh, But the Congress has a different responsibility. We have the power of impeachment. We have to take a look at this report and decide whether or not it makes sense to move forward with uh, our own prerogatives. Uh, The House obviously has that responsibility before the Senate, but we can't do that without the report. Uh, So I'm really worried about why it's taken this long. I'm certainly worried about reports that that suggest the Attorney General misled Congress in uh, underplaying the seriousness of the allegations in the report. And I also want the public to be able to see this. I think this is such an important issue um, that's dragged out for so long that it makes sense for both Congress and for public to, and for the public to see it and see it soon. Uh, you mentioned uh, whether uh, the question of whether uh, Attorney General Barr has underplayed uh, what was actually uh, found out in the investigation, including uh, Barr telling lawmakers that there wasn't evidence sufficient to prove the president obstructed justice. Is that one of the open questions that, that you want to know more about, Senator? Well, absolutely. And the language that uh, Attorney General Barr used in his letter seemed um, very, very intentional uh, in the sense that it raised the possibility that the reason he came to a conclusion that there was no obstruction was because of legal protections he believed the president enjoyed uh, from obstruction charges, uh, which is different than the question of whether there was actually sufficient evidence to prove uh, an obstruction charge. Uh, So uh, given, uh, I think, the very careful language he used, uh, it seems clear that it's possible there is some actual evidence of 
uh, obstruction. Of course, a lot of people would say that the firing of mm-hmm. the FBI director in the middle of the investigation, um, his request of Jim Comey that he take it easy on individuals who uh, were already under investigation is evidence of obstruction in and of itself. Uh, but uh, I think that is one of the open questions in this report. Can we talk about, you mentioned, uh, you know, Congress has uh, the power to impeach. You know, we heard uh, Nancy Pelosi say that, you know, right as of now, uh, there's uh, not a lot of appetite uh, for, among some lawmakers uh, to do that. But it all depends on, on when this report is released and what's in the report. I mean, how do you feel about the power to impeach, Senator Murphy? I know a lot of folks think that, you know, all Democrats are, are have been cheering Mueller on and hoping that he comes to the conclusion that the president has um, committed offenses that are uh, worthy of impeachment. Uh, maybe some Democrats think that way. I don't. Uh, I frankly hope that the Mueller report does not include evidence of activity that would merit impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. I think that that process would be terrible for the nation, would tear our country apart. Uh, That being said, if the um, offenses are serious and grave enough, then I think you have to entertain that possibility. That's the constitutional responsibility of the Congress. Uh, But I hope that's not a route that we have to go down. Uh, That is not how I want to spend uh, my next year and a half. But I I can't know that unless I see this report. And I guess I worry that the longer and longer that the attorney general takes to send it to us maybe suggests that there is something in that report that he's trying to hide from Congress. If he's taking this long uh, to blot out uh, all sorts of information, that's what is suggested, that he's using all of this time to redact all sorts of information from the report that Congress will never see. Um, That gives me more reason to be concerned about what he's trying to hide. Uh, When we think about uh, the work that the Senate committees are doing, I mean, what do you want to come out of the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation? Should Mueller testify before lawmakers? I mean, I've always been skeptical about what these congressional investigations are going to be able to divine. You know, the the Intelligence Committee in the Senate or the House, neither of them are really set up to be committees of inquiry. I mean, they don't they don't they aren't staffed with investigators. Um, They have increased their capacity to ask serious questions. But I've always felt that the Mueller investigation, that the special counsel was the right place to invest um, our country's energy with respect to our effort to try to get to the truth as to what happened. So uh, my expectations have never been really high for uh, the Intelligence Committee investigations. I'll be interested to hear if they believe after they've read the report they have additional avenues to pursue. Um, But I guess I'm hoping that all of the relevant questions are answered in the Mueller report so that, at least on this question of Russian collusion, the intelligence committees don't need to do much more work after it's delivered to us. Uh, Here's what uh, a colleague from across the aisle, U.S. Senator Richard Burr, who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, says about uh, the report. I haven't read the Mueller report. I've got some ideas to what the Senate Intelligence Committee report is going to look like. I I think for the pieces that we overlap on, uh, if you take... uh, the uh, special counsel's conclusion, which is that there was no collusion that they could uh, find evidence of between the campaign and Russians, it will probably be very consistent with the report that we come out with. And what's your response uh, to what Senator Burr is saying there, uh, Senator Murphy? 
Well, I, I don't have much of one, unfortunately, because I haven't read the uh, uh, the Intelligence Committee's draft report. I'm not privy to their uh, their investigation, and of course, I haven't seen the Mueller report. So uh, I don't know whether those two reports will be the same. And I actually I don't know how Senator Burr can be sure of that, given that uh, he has not read a 300 page report. He's only read a four page summary. I, listen, I would be very happy if. Um, you know, both the Mueller report and the Intelligence Committee report came to the conclusion that there was uh, no collusion. That is not something that I'm rooting for. Uh, you know, I wanted to bring back something you said earlier about, you know, not wanting to spend the next year and a half uh, waiting uh, to get the details of this report. You know, there are some Americans who feel like uh, with the Mueller investigation concluding with this summary from A.G. Barr, that's time to move on. Are you worried that uh, a focus, a continued focus on this will really derail the Democrats' chance to win in 2020? I just don't look at it through a political lens. I have no idea what the you know, impact of this report will be on Democrats or Republicans politically a year and a half from now. Uh, I, I guess I'm incredibly frustrated that Congress has not really moved forward with anything that meaningfully helps the people of Connecticut uh, during this time. I mean, we really haven't taken any action on immigration or health care. We've only raised people's taxes by and large in Connecticut over the last year and a half. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think people in Connecticut are rightly frustrated that there's not a lot happening in, the, you know, in, in, in Washington that is benefiting them. Maybe that uh, can change with Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives. But there's really no excuse just because, you know, Robert Mueller is conducting an investigation. That doesn't mean that, you know, we should all sit on the sidelines and just watch his work or spend all our time reading his report. We can actually, you know, try to work together to solve some of these big problems. And I hope that we we do that at some point this year. Today on Where We Live, uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy with us for the full hour. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we're going to uh, take some calls in just a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask you, Senator Murphy, a lot of people putting their names into uh, the ring uh, to run uh, next year. Is this something that you still uh, have put off the table? You will not run to for president of the United States? I won't. No, I've ruled it out. Uh, you know, I... Um, you just don't have the fire in my belly to run a presidential race. But I also love the job that I have. I really think that, you know, you can make an enormous difference on the issues that you care about in the United States Senate. And uh, I see the ability to get things done for the issues I care about, like gun violence, like mental health reform, like support for manufacturing in the United States Senate. I'm uh, not sure that I am convinced that I could, you know, make more progress uh, on the issues that I care about by going off and running for president over the course of a year and a half rather than uh, hunkering down and doing really good work in the Senate. It does seem like every one of my friends is running. Uh, it looks like half of the Democrats in the Senate are out on the campaign trail. And so somebody's got to stay behind and you know help run the shop in the United States Senate. And I'm happy to be one of those people. You said a lot of your friends are running. What if they uh, reached out to you and wanted you to be a running mate? Would you consider that? You know what? That's so far uh, down the line. I, I doubt that will be the case. Um, so I uh, sort of won't attempt to cross those kind of bridges until we get there. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of attention on former Vice President uh, Joe Biden uh, being uh, somebody that's uh, a lot of people are looking at to run in 2020. But, uh, you know, there's been attention on his conduct back in 2009. Do you believe that conduct disqualifies him from running, Senator Murphy? 
you know, I, I wouldn't tell him that he shouldn't run for uh, for president. I think it's up to him to make that decision. I think he knows now that this is going to be an issue that will come up in the context of that race. Uh, he has always been a politician who, um, you, you know, who where there's a physicality involved in the way that he interacts with people. And uh, he needs to understand that there are many people um, who don't find that appropriate and who um, uh, who, who, who really want uh, and want to protect their physical space. And so I think he knows that now. Um, I think he's got to continue to talk about this, and he will, I think, be going into a presidential race understanding uh, that this will be something uh, that he will continue to have to answer for. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, Joe Biden really does represent the establishment. Is that really the, the future of the Democratic Party, Senator Murphy, a candidate like Joe Biden? Well, I know that the Democratic Party does well in presidential campaigns when we nominate next generation candidates. You think of Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, uh, John F. Kennedy. So, you know, we definitely um, have a history of doing better in general elections when we're nominating candidates that um, come from the next generation of leadership. Uh, that being said, maybe this is a different moment. Maybe this is a, a moment where people are, you know, so exhausted with the Trump presidency that they, um, you know, want a safer option. I'm not saying that's Joe Biden, but it may be that they, you know, want someone who has a a, a, a greater level of uh, experience in government, but that would belie you know decades of experience when it comes to the kind of democratic candidates that uh, that succeed. Um, you know, my friends that are running tend to be the younger generation. You know, people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand. I think they're all fantastic, and I think they'd all you know be great standard bearers for our party if they ended up making it through what is going to be a very very crowded primary. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy with us from a studio in Washington. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Kurt is calling from Beacon Falls. Kurt, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Senator. Uh, I live in Beacon Falls, and I just have a couple questions. As far as Congress and senators go, over the years, we've saw that uh, congressmen and senators have used public hush money to quiet sexual scandals and stuff. I'm wondering why... We are spending our dollars on that. Why are taxpayers' dollars being spent on that? Why aren't they paying for it? And the other thing would be, why doesn't Congress or the Senate give public accountings? I would like to know well, how my money is being spent, this Mueller investigation. How much does this cost us? The Benghazi investigation, when nothing happened, how much did that cost the American taxpayers? I believe that we should have a little bit more transparency as far as where our tax dollars are spent and how much we're spending on some of these ridiculous investigations where nothing happens. Thank you, Kurt. Well, I agree with you on the first point. Taxpayer money should never be used to cover up the misdeeds of a member of Congress. So there's no disagreement between you and I on that. And I've sponsored legislation, been a co-sponsor of legislation to make that change. As to the second question, I don't have those numbers off the top of my head, but they're, those are public uh, um, uh, those are public numbers. You can find out, and I can find out for you, Kurt, uh, how much money has been spent on the Mueller investigation, how much money was spent on the Benghazi uh, investigation. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I, I think that it, it is important for you know Congress to spend some resources to try to investigate potential misdeeds by administrations. Now, maybe I thought the Benghazi investigation was overblown and overdone, and maybe others think that the Mueller investigation is 
overblown and overdone. But uh, I think it's part of our constitutional responsibility as a Congress uh, to ask questions when we think something wrong has happened in the administration. And um, what I think is important about the Mueller investigation is that it was um, done outside of the political process. Uh, Bob Mueller is a Republican. Uh, He is someone that enjoys broad support from both Republicans and Democrats. And so when serious allegations are made of an administration, I think it's you know better off to have somebody nonpartisan doing the investigation. And uh, you know that hasn't always been the case, but I think that that's a good rule going forward. And I think you know the public is you know more willing to have their tax dollars go to nonpartisan investigations than they are to congressional partisan investigations. Uh, Ben's calling from Wallingford. Ben, you're on where we live. Ben, are you there? Oh, looks like Ben is not answering. Uh, Representative Hughes from Hartford is calling in. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, uh, hi, Senator. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, my question is uh, around Connecticut's uh, concentration of our economy on the defense industry. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about really centering our future economy on climate resilience and transitioning to renewable energies and being a supplier for components for uh, renewable energy versus uh, so heavy in the defense industry. Sure. Well, I mean, I'll say this. I, I am very proud of the work that we do in Connecticut to protect our warfighters, uh, whether it's the next generation submarines we're making in uh, southeastern Connecticut, the helicopters we make in Stratford, or the jet engines that we produce for the new Joint Strike Fighters. Um, I am a big supporter of those programs. I actually sought a seat on the Appropriations Committee in order to make sure that we continue to uh, have a robust defense sector in Connecticut. But I also don't disagree with you that we have the opportunity in Connecticut to walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can continue to have a strong defense sector and employ thousands of people in those jobs while building up our renewable energy capacity. We've got um, the, the platform to do that. We already have an advanced battery industry in Connecticut. We have the world's leading fuel cell Um, uh, companies in Connecticut. And one of the reasons why I want us to set a national climate policy that actually properly prices dirty energy coming from carbon sources, which would incentivize the development of more renewable sources of energy, is because I think that Connecticut would capture a lot of the jobs if we created a new national demand for renewable energy. Uh, And I think that uh, the new governor um, is focused on that as well. So I think it's hard for us to really scale up the number of jobs that we have in Connecticut if we don't have a national climate policy. Um, But uh, I don't think there's a choice to be made uh, as to whether we want to be a strong defense manufacturing state or we want to be a strong renewable energy manufacturing state. I think we can probably be both. And I think those economies can, you know, probably feed off each other. Join our conversation with uh, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy on where we live, 860-275-7266. Ben from Wallingford. Ben, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to thank uh, Senator Murphy for his efforts to end the disaster in uh, Yemen that has killed so many innocent people and is completely unnecessary. And I just wondered if in that same vein, he, in order to stop things like that in the future from happening. He would support things like the Rokana has been pushing for and freezing defense spending to levels that are already too high, um, but freezing it so it's not going any higher. 
like uh, Ro Khanna has tried to do in the uh, in in the committees. Uh, ben, thanks for your question, and for you know, f- folks out there who you know don't know what just happened yesterday here in Congress, we uh, passed through the Senate and the House a resolution that ends the U.S. participation in a uh, war in Yemen led by the Saudis but supported by the United States that has uh, created a humanitarian catastrophe in that country. Uh, over 85,000 young children under the age of five have died of starvation and disease. Over 10,000 people have died as a direct result of hostilities, the world's uh, largest ever cholera epidemic in that nation. The United States has been funding this war. We've been supplying the bombs. We've been helping them refuel the planes. Um, and it's a absolute humanitarian nightmare. It, just as bad as that al-Qaeda is getting stronger. Um, the group that actually has the greatest threat to hit the United States is taking advantage of the chaos inside Yemen and getting bigger and stronger. So Congress stepped in and on a bipartisan basis, this is a resolution that I led, in the Senate, um, pulled the United States out of this war. The problem is the resolution has to be signed by the president, and right now it doesn't appear that he's going to do that. Um, as to your broader question, you know, again, I mean, I, I I am someone who believes that peace does come through military strength. I think that you know the NATO alliance and the uh, size and the scope of the United States Navy um, assuring the free navigability of the seas worldwide uh, has had a beneficial effect. I am a big critic at the ratio of military spending to non-military international spending. I have a very detailed plan that I put out about a year and a half ago uh, to double the size of non-military spending, diplomacy, uh, climate change, um, anti-propaganda efforts. So I'm not necessarily somebody who thinks that we should be slashing the amount of money we spend on our military. I do think that we need to scale up lots of other opportunities. And just because you have a big military doesn't mean that you have to use it. So I'm somebody that says, keep a strong military, but be very careful about where and how you use it. And I'm willing to you know, put my, my votes and my legislation uh, behind that belief. Senator Murphy, you mentioned that uh, President Trump is unlikely to sign the War Powers Resolution. Um, what is your hope of what that will accomplish, uh, you know, just generally if President Trump is not on board with it? Well, when we had the debate in the Senate uh, at the end of December, uh, the Saudis were, I think, so fearful that the position of the United States was changing uh, that they uh, came to the negotiating table with the uh, group that they're fighting inside Yemen uh, uh, called the Houthis. And there was a ceasefire, at least around the most important humanitarian aid port um, and a a plan for prisoner exchanges. That was really important. Every time that the Congress steps up and starts to send a message that there is winnowing support for the Saudi-led war, it prompts the Saudis to get closer to the negotiating table, even if President Trump isn't yet with us. So there's still, I think, something to be gained by Congress speaking up on this, even if we can't convince the president to sign the legislation. I'm going to take one more call before we head to break. Uh, Shiva is calling from New Canaan. Uh, Shiva, just a couple of minutes left. I understand you're interested in learning more about uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and what this means for a conflict with Iran. Yes. Hi, it's Shiva. Senator, thank you so much for everything you did to lead to the passage of the War Powers Resolution. I am um, curious as to your thoughts on how things are playing out in the Middle East with Jared, what's happening with the Saudis? How likely do you think, um, you know, confrontation is with Iran? Just basically your outlook uh, on the Middle East. 
Well, good to hear from you, Shiva. Uh, listen, I, I, I think that the president, um, you know, has badly screwed up American interests in the Middle East, uh, whether it be his nonsensical policy on Syria. Some days he's going, some days he's leaving his withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement, his inability to put back together some of the fractures that have happened in the region, in particular between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Um, I, I just think he's made a mess of the place, and Jared Kushner's, you know, claims to be, you know, working on some secret Israeli-Palestinian peace plan that nobody knows about um, just raises the level of confusion. Uh, you know, one of the things that I worry that we've gotten wrong in our understanding of the Middle East is that while Iran does present a real and direct threat to Israel's security. Um, it also has most of its weapons pointed at Saudi Arabia. And so every time that we scale up our military sales to Saudi Arabia, it causes Iran to increase their support for their ballistic missile programs. And so if we want Iran to stand down militarily, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be engaged in record levels of arms sales to the Saudis. That's one of the reasons why I've been a critic of the pace of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. It's a complicated region um, in which I think this administration has very little idea uh, about how to push the right buttons. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy joining us for the hour from Washington. What question do you have for Senator Murphy? Join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. After the break, we're going to talk about guns legislation. You can join us, too. We hope so to hear from you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is with us for the hour. What's your question for him? 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Senator Murphy has been a vocal voice to change gun laws in the U.S. We wanted to f- talk more about what's happening on Capitol Hill related to guns legislation. And joining me now for this part of the discussion is Ryan Lindsay. She's a reporter for WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, and the Guns in America Project. It's a public radio reporting collaborative. Ryan, good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I wanted to turn to Senator Murphy. Let's talk about this universal backgrounds uh, checks legislation that passed the House, I believe, in February. What is it asking exactly, Senator Murphy? Well, the concept is very simple. The concept is everybody who buys a gun should be required to prove that they are not a criminal or don't have a history of serious mental illness before they buy that weapon. That's what happens in Connecticut. We have a universal background checks requirement, but many states don't. And so the issue becomes uh, guns don't sort of respect state borders. And many, if not most of the guns that are used in crimes in states that have Um, universal background checks come from states that don't have universal background checks. In states that don't have universal background checks, you can go to a gun show, these pop-up gun uh, selling um, forums on the weekends, or you can go online and buy a gun without having to go through a background check. Uh, The evidence is pretty clear. In states that have universal background checks, there are 30 to 40 percent less gun homicides than in states that don't. Um, And so we need a national requirement for universal background checks. The good news is that that's supported by 97 percent of Americans. There's nothing that gets 97 percent support in this country except for universal background checks. The House um, 
uh, is controlled by Democrats because uh, the American public uh, came out and voted in 2018, kicking out of Congress about 18 NRA A-rated members of Congress and installing there members who would vote for a universal background checks bill. I don't know whether that bill uh, ultimately will uh, be called before the Republican-led United States Senate, but it is one of the most popular measures out there. It's one of the most impactful things we can do to increase public safety, and I will continue to lead the fight uh, to try to get this passed. Senator Murphy, um, there are states like California where their universal background check didn't actually decrease homicides or suicides. And then places like Tennessee and Indiana who repealed their background check laws, and that actually didn't change the rate of homicides and suicides in those states. So when it comes to this legislation, a lot of these guns are already in the homes and already on the streets. So how can you how can you Congress sort of seek to address that? These are you know everyday concerns that people have. Well, listen, there are always, when you look at a big data set, right, there are always outliers on one side and outliers on the other side. So you can absolutely find a handful of states in which a change in background checks law didn't lead to the outcome that you see when you look at all of the data together. When you look at all of the data together, uh, the the finding is irrefutable. Um, States that have universal background checks laws have much less lower rates of homicides in states that don't. So um, that's the data. Uh, And no, a universal background checks law will not uh, eliminate every gun homicide. We are not going to take every weapon off the streets or out of people's homes because people should have the right to be able to buy a weapon for uh, their own protection, for a collection for hunting or shooting for sport. That's what the Supreme Court says uh, the Second Amendment allows. But uh, what we know from the overall data is that background checks absolutely work. And in Connecticut, um, you know, if you want to pull out our experience, uh, Johns Hopkins says that our decision to uh, require a local permit with a background check for every single gun purchase led to a 40 percent reduction in gun homicides in our state. Our state's experience is representative of the broader uh, aggregate of experience all across the country. What's the climate now uh, like now in the Senate when it comes to discussions around this universal background check law? You know, it's pretty partisan. I think that uh, Senator McConnell, who's the leader of the Senate, does not want to have a vote on universal background checks because he does not want to put his members, many of which are up for re-election in 2020, in the position of having to decide between the NRA and their constituents. Um, The NRA is part of the fabric of the Republican Party. They are much less powerful than they were before, but they are still a big part of the Republican establishment. And I don't think in the Senate that McConnell is ready to break his party away from the gun lobby. If he doesn't, I think the voters will force that break to happen. Uh, The Republicans will lose control of the Senate just like they did of the House, based in part on their obstinance on the issue of this very popular measure. But in the short term, I do think it's going to be very hard to convince Mitch McConnell to pull up a vote on background checks. And unfortunately, he controls the agenda. So without his support, it's almost impossible to get a vote on background checks in our body. Uh, Senator Murphy, you mentioned uh, data. I'm just curious. So we, we've heard for a long time uh, because of the uh, gun lobby that uh, there haven't isn't a lot of studies uh, to look at gun violence in this country as a public health issue. What is the latest with legislation to change that? 
Well, th- there there is a lot of data, um, but there isn't enough. And in particular, there's not enough data to really understand, you know, for instance, what's happening in American cities. What we know is that um, kids who ex- live in neighborhoods with high rates of gun violence, whether or not they have been shot or even an immediate family member have been shot, um, experience a level of daily trauma that comes with the fear of gun violence that um, corrupts their brain circuitry. Uh, there's a hormone that gets released called cortisol um, that when it's released in small doses um, doesn't affect the brain negatively. But when your brain is awash in cortisol, which is what happens with many of these kids who are growing up in places like the north end of Hartford, um, it, it basically renders their brains unable to cope and learn. So it's not a coincidence that the underperforming schools um, are most often in the violent neighborhoods. We don't have enough data there because there is this law that says that the CDC can't do research on anything that might um, that might look like political advocacy on the issue of guns. Uh, and so we are going to seek to set up a new fund in the federal government that would um, do an end around on that um, prohibition. Uh, Senate, uh, Congresswoman DeLauro uh, from Connecticut, who chairs the um, Appropriations Subcommittee on Health in the House, is going to include a gun violence research fund in the bill that passes the House of Representatives. I'm going to push that in the United States Senate, and hopefully we will have this dedicated fund that can get some more answers on those questions about what is happening, especially to these children who are growing up in gun violence-prone neighborhoods. Senator Murphy, uh, Lorelei on Twitter says, everybody who buys a gun should have to prove they don't have a criminal record or other red flags for violence. I wanted to ask you, uh, when we think about people in crisis having access to guns, how difficult is it to uh, remove that ability for them to have firearms? Well, you're never going to have a perfect filter. Uh, so remember, the background check system, um, you know, only covers um, serious crimes. It only covers incidents of mental illness when you have actually been subject to inpatient treatment. Uh, and so we do need other mechanisms to get guns out of the hands of people who already have them uh, that do pose a danger to themselves or others. And that's why Connecticut has passed this extreme risk protection order, um, something that we are looking at trying to incentivize on the federal level. This is um, a court order that would allow family or friends or law enforcement to go to court and say, listen, this individual um, is not well, is talking about doing doing harm to themselves or to someone that they know, and we need to take the guns out of that person's home. That's um, a proposal that enjoys a lot of Republican support here in Congress. And so uh, we're hopeful that we're going to pass some legislation that would add that protection to the underlying protection that is afforded by the background checks uh, system that's got a lot of bipartisan support in Connecticut and all over the country. Just for some context, there are 13 states, along with the District of Columbia, that have some form of an extreme risk protection law present. Um, As Senator Senator Murphy mentioned, it's not quite on the federal level. I want to pivot a little bit. Um, Senator Murphy, you spent some time at New Britain High School along with Representative Hayes last week. Um, There were teachers there, students present. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that conversation was? 
Well, we were there to talk about um, the decision by the Department of Education, by Secretary Betsy DeVos, to allow states to use federal dollars to arm teachers. This is, in my mind, an incredibly dangerous proposal. And though I'm not worried that the state of Connecticut is going to use federal dollars to arm teachers, I am generally worried that all of our taxpayer dollars are now eligible to be used to make our schools and our classrooms less safe. And I you know, wanted to come and talk to students and teachers about their perspective and uh, on this issue. Um, students at New Britain High School were, I think, unanimous in their belief that, you know, ultimately this would make their school much more dangerous, would raise the level of fear inside the school. And we have lots of anecdotal information uh, to know that when you load up a school with guns, you can't guarantee that those guns are safeguarded. There's lots of incidences in schools that have or allow guns where they've been left in bathrooms, where they've been accidentally discharged in a classroom, where a teacher in a fit of rage fired the gun purposefully. Um, these are not police officers. And as Johanna Hayes, our new congresswoman and former teacher, says, uh, you know, you wouldn't um, you wouldn't take a police officer and convert them to become a teacher without some serious training. And so you shouldn't take a teacher and expect them to become a police officer without similar levels of training. I want to point out that there are 31 states where teachers and staff can legally carry weapons in schools. Um, and there's 18 states in D.C. that have bans around that. So, again, this legislation is trying to sort of prevent, potentially prevent teachers from having arms within the school. But again, I want to circle back. What about states where that is a reality that teachers and staff can currently be armed? Well, listen, the decisions about what happens inside schools is still largely a uh, one left for state and local governments. So the legislation that I've introduced doesn't impose a nationwide ban on guns in schools. It just says federal funds shouldn't be used to buy guns in schools. I actually think that the that federal law already says that. Uh, I think Betsy DeVos is wrong to interpret the statute to um, allow for states to use federal dollars to buy guns. And so our legislation, we think, is just uh, ultimately clarifying. Uh, but this is all part of the NRA's mythology. They, they have this um, this fiction uh, where good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns. That's not actually how it works. In fact, um, places that have more guns uh, have more gun crime. Uh, if you have a gun in the home, it is much more likely to be used to kill you than it is to be used by you to kill an intruder. And in the aggregate, if places with more guns had less gun crimes, then America would be uh, would, would have the least gun crime in the world. Um, we have the highest level of gun violence in the high income world. So I just think it's important to keep attacking this sort of gun industry created idea that if you buy lots of guns and you pack places with lots of guns, you're going to have less gun crime. It's actually the opposite. How do you reach out to black and brown communities in your work? Um, we've got the background checks, extremist protections, gun violence at large, and this notion of arming teachers. But a lot of constituents probably don't feel represented by their representatives, by their senators, um, and in government at large. So how, what's your thoughts around addressing that disconnect? 
Well, listen, I'm constantly uh, in and around uh, places like the north end of Hartford, the east end of Bridgeport, constantly um, uh, putting communities of color at the forefront in this debate. Um, A lot of folks after Sandy Hook, you know, wondered why the Sandy Hook parents were pushing the issue of background checks uh, because uh, Adam Lanza got that gun through a background check. Uh, Universal background checks arguably wouldn't have stopped the tragedy in Sandy Hook. Um, But background checks is the most important intervention to reduce gun crime in cities because um, these cities that are awash in illegal guns um, are so because the background checks law allows criminals and gun traffickers to go into states without universal background checks, buy a mess load of guns online or at gun shows, and then come into a place like Hartford or Chicago and New York and sell those guns on the street. So universal background checks is maybe the most important way, one of the most important ways to reduce uh, gun crimes in our cities. And I'm glad that in Connecticut, we've been able to you know, marry together the advocates in Hartford or Bridgeport or New Haven with the families um, in Newtown and San hook to, you know, push this intervention. This is where we live. You're hearing Connecticut's U.S. Senator uh, Chris Murphy. Also with us, Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Project. It's a public radio collaborative. Uh, just one more on uh, guns, Senator Murphy. Uh, Susan writes on Facebook, I'm wondering, since people are never going to willingly disarm in this country, is there any traction to the idea of requiring that guns be insured? We're required by law to insure our homes, our cars. Why not required to insure guns? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. There was a, um, a terrorist attack in New York a couple years ago, in which an individual drove a truck down a, a busy road and um, and did some significant uh, damage. And uh, some commentator on Fox News said, "Well, you know, what are Democrats going to call for next? Truck control?" And you know, I and others pointed out that you know if we regulated guns like we regulated trucks, we'd have a lot less gun violence in this country because you need a license uh, and training in order to drive a truck. You need insurance in order to uh, drive a truck. Um, We don't require any of those things for guns. Um, I think insurance for guns is uh, a really interesting idea. It's one that I'm um, interested in pursuing. I I think that the uh, concept of universal background checks is just one that enjoys so much political support, is so baked into the uh, existing American conversation that we should probably get that done first. And and then once we get Republicans in particular used to, you know, voting for these interventions and, you know, not having the sky fall back home, uh, then we can line up another, uh, a series of other measures. And maybe in that list is a uh, proposal to um, uh, require some level of insurance coverage. I haven't really worked through that proposal in detail, but, you know, I'd be willing to take a more in-depth look at it. We're going to pivot to healthcare, but I want to thank Ryan Lindsay for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thanks for having me. Um, We are hearing, again, uh, we can't keep track of how the president keeps shifting uh, um, his his plans, but uh, the latest, uh, Senator Murphy, is that he's not, he's backing off plans to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I'm curious if you could respond to just the developments in the last week and uh, what you think is going to happen with the challenge that's still before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit to strike all of the Affordable Care Act down. Well, I mean, let's clarify. He may be backing down on his effort to legislative repeal 
legislatively repeal the Affordable Care Act because he is ramping up his effort to try to get the courts to strike down the entirety of the law. Historically, um, presidential administrations defend the laws of America in court, even if they don't like that particular law. That has been seen as a responsibility of um, the Department of Justice. President Trump has taken a different tact on the Affordable Care Act. He sent his lawyers a couple of years ago to court to argue that a big part of the Affordable Care Act, that protections for people with pre-existing conditions, should be struck down as unconstitutional. And then a couple of weeks ago, he amended his instructions to the Department of Justice and told them to weigh in on a particular lawsuit and now argue that every piece of the Affordable Care Act should be immediately struck down by the courts. That would be a humanitarian catastrophe if it occurred, if overnight 200,000 people in Connecticut who get their insurance through the Affordable Care Act lost it and everybody with a pre-existing condition was subject to higher rates again. But that's what the president is doing. He's throwing all of his eggs in the um, in the court basket. And, you know, he may ultimately be successful. It's very rare that an administration goes to court to argue against a, uh, a U.S. statute and maybe the courts will uh, listen. So it's a really dangerous time for this country. Uh, and in Connecticut, where we've successfully rolled out the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, our emergency rooms would absolutely be overwhelmed. Uh, beyond capacity if the courts struck down the law. We're going to take a break and continue our conversation with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. This is where we live. We'll take some listener calls right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy with us for the hour. You can join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. A call in from Manchester. What's your question for Senator Murphy? Hi, Senator. I was hoping you could give us a update on your recent trip to England and Ireland and your concerns with Brexit and its impact on the Good Friday Agreement and the people in the north of Ireland. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that question. You know, we've got a really proud uh, Irish-American community in Connecticut, uh, of which I am a member. And I went uh, over recently to England and Ireland to express some real concerns about what Brexit, this is the departure of Britain from the European Union, will mean for peace in Ireland. Um, you know, we've had, um, you know, decades now of peace between Protestants and Catholics there uh, and an opening of the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. The problem is if Britain leaves the European Union, it would mean that Northern Ireland would leave the European Union. Ireland would stay in the European Union, and you'd have to put back up a border between those two countries. Uh, that would be terrible for the island, bad for the peace process, and it would also become a target you know, for folks that are still engaged in that uh, sort of sectarian conversation. So we are really pushing um, Britain to leave the European Union in a way that does not establish a border. That's very difficult to do, uh, but I went over there to send that message. And, and and that's a message that both Republicans and Democrats are pushing. The United States has been long engaged in uh, trying to ensure peace uh, in Northern Ireland. It's been a project that we've led on and we continue to uh, need to lead on. Uh, also, there are a lot of American companies, Connecticut companies, um, that would be harmed by uh, that border going back up. I just met with United Technologies yesterday that has a 
100-person factory uh, right on the border between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland, and lots of their employees cross that sort of non-existent border today. If uh, a hard border was to go back up, uh, that factory might have to close, and that would be really bad news for a company that means a lot to us in Connecticut. So I'm going to continue to engage on that issue as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, because it matters to uh, Irish Americans in Connecticut, but also because it matters to companies in Connecticut. Uh, David is calling from Middletown. David, just a couple minutes left. What's your question? Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. Go ahead. Quick question regarding the census. I received uh, my census in the mail, and I know there's a still a lawsuit about the citizenship. Should I even bother to fill it out? No, that's resolved. Oh, no, s- s- fill it out. Send it in. Uh, you know, there's still uh, questions about you know, some of the questions that have been excluded from the census uh, by the Trump administration. But uh, we need everybody in the state to fill out their census questionnaire to get it back. We need everybody in the state to um, be evangelists on the census. I know it sounds you know, like one of the more um, boring endeavors that you will take part in, but uh, Connecticut will not receive its fair share of federal resources uh, without everyone filling out the census. You know, Connecticut is always a net exporter of dollars to the federal government because of our, you know, high income uh, status. We tend to give a lot more to the federal government than we get back. So we fight and claw for every dime uh, that we do get. And we need everybody in the state to fill out that census uh, form, get it back as quickly as possible. That helps the delegation fight on behalf of our state. Senator, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you about your report uh, exposing issues with the NCAA and calling for compensation of student athletes. Why are you wading into this now? So I'm a huge college sports fan. Obviously, I, I grew up, you know, living and dying by, you know, the performance of UConn basketball. And uh, I just have seen the industry get bigger and bigger. Um, $14 billion now flows into college athletic departments every year. And I just don't think there's any justification for all of these people getting rich off of college athletics, not just the coaches, but the, you know, shoe company executives, the um, TV network CEOs, and, and that these kids remain poor. It's a civil rights issue as far as I'm concerned, in part because most of these kids who play at least big-time college basketball and football are African-American, and most of the adults getting rich are uh, are white. Um, I'm glad that uh, Gino and, and, and Coach Edsel uh, seem to agree with me. They think that uh, college athletes should get compensated. There's a lot of different ways you can do that, um, but I think it's time we fix this inequity. Is it the biggest issue facing Connecticut or the country? No, um, but it is an example of how a big, powerful elite has taken advantage of a much less uh, powerful group of individuals, in this case, student-athletes. And uh, as one of the younger members of the Senate, as somebody who cares a lot about college sports, um, I felt it was probably time to speak up. And I've gotten a lot of interesting Republican uh, interest in joining me on this since I released that report a few days ago. Uh, So what would be, uh, I'm putting you on the spot, but what would be something that would help these student-athletes being able to get a stipend? Uh, You know, the fact that these coaches and universities are making uh, mad money and they're not? Yeah, I mean, only 20% of the money that colleges collect actually go to scholarships. Uh, And uh, I don't have the answer. I think the NCAA should come up with that answer. They're the experts, not me. There's legislation that would allow for students to be able to get uh, returns on their own um, marketing of their name um, and their personas. That might be a place to start. We're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much. Chris Murphy, Connecticut's U.S. Senator. Uh, We appreciate your time. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Scott Breedy. Thanks for your calls, your questions, and have a great weekend.